Welcome to Season 5, Episode 8 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Jenny Croft. Jenny is a writer and translator, and her new novel, The Extinction of Irina Ray, is out on the 27th of February from Scribe Press. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. It's lovely to finally meet you. I feel like I've read so many of your words in the, uh, translation, so it's lovely to meet you and to have you on to talk about your brand new novel. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for reading the translations, too. It's not everyone who picks up a translation, so it's always appreciated. Hmm. Yes, we'll talk about translations shortly, but I want to ask you about your life over in Tulsa. So, And you just moved house as well. Yeah, we just bought our first house, which is exciting and also horrifying and terrifying mm-hmm. um, when you see how much debt you're suddenly in. And <laughs> um, my husband captured a little mouse uh, and released it from the kitchen yesterday. You know, that kind of thing that doesn't necessarily come up when you're in an apartment building, at least it didn't come up for us. Um, so yeah, we're, it's a, been a busy time. Um, and it's exactly today, the day we're recording, it's exactly one month from publication in the US. Um, so exciting things are are coming up as well. Brilliant. And you grew up in Tulsa, didn't you? <clears throat> I did, yeah. And my first book was about, mostly about Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if it was about Tulsa, but set in Tulsa and about um, partially just one's feelings about the place in which one grows up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been, I was really nervous. So I spent my first 19 years in Oklahoma, wanting very much to travel. And then I spent the next 20 years or so traveling mm-hmm. um, in a way, living in other countries and cities. And then I received a fellowship to come back to Tulsa and really wasn't sure if it was a good idea or not. And we weren't planning on staying that long. Um, but actually, it's been unexpectedly quite wonderful. People have been lovely. We've encountered all of these amazing opportunities, you know, to teach or to do new projects. And um, yeah, it's been great. And I just feel like the city has become much more progressive in my absence and there are all kinds of new and revitalized neighborhoods and um, it's just been a nice place to be since we've had we had twins 20 months ago a year and a half ago Mm. Um, it's also that also changes the way you interact with the city obviously yeah have you found it very grounding to have twins and also cats and have your own house yeah it is definitely a weird because I feel like most of my adult life was spent without interacting with the kind of mundane concerns of mm. um, human beings. <laughs> like I just sort of would land someplace mm. and write or translate. And um, yeah, it's definitely a different, certainly I think obviously the twins have been the biggest change. And I always used to work in the morning, for example, I would get up, have my coffee and just kind of get into a working trance. And when you have children, you can't exactly disappear for six Mm -hmm. hours whenever you please. Um, So that's been, I think that's going to fundamentally change my approach to writing in the next few years. I may be doing more things like prose poetry than novels 
Um, mm. Just things that you can do in shorter periods of time. Yeah, I was going to ask you in terms of your work has has that changed a lot since you've had the had the twins? Because I know that I I've always said to myself like having kids you have to steal time from the corners of the day basically. But have you found that that your working rhythms have really changed like over the last twenty months? Yes, definitely. I mean, so I I sold the extinction of Arena Ray two weeks after giving birth. Um, And then my editor, Daniel Lodell, um, he, you know, he, he sent me this kind of major rewrite um, or suggestions for a major rewrite. And I worked on that for the next eight months or so. And it was really, 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 really hard Mm. to do that with little babies. Um, and like, like I say, it's just, there's something for me about a novel, whether I'm translating it or writing it, um, where I just, I feel like I need to completely immerse myself. Like I can't, can't just dip in and out because mm. it is a different world. Um, and so if you're like answering questions, just like taking care of logistics and feeding a baby and changing a diaper like you can't stay in the world of these fictional characters Mm. this other time of this other place so i i found that extremely challenging and i recently finished translating a novel as well just a few weeks ago we finished the the final edits and i i found that still um you know much later now they're toddlers rather than newborns or infants i still found it significantly harder than it used to be Mm. I want to talk about your journey into translation because we most of us know you I guess from your work as a translator especially with writing with writers like uh Olga Tukajuk and can you just pronounce check me on Tukajuk as well (laughs) yeah it's Tukarchuk like the Czech Republic okay as though it were a ch yeah perfect okay so most of us know you from your work doing things like that and also with authors like Frederico Falco and Sylvia Malloy and people like that. But I was reading you kind of created your own language with your sister when you were growing up. Um, and then you, you know, you took yourself all over the world and, and learned languages like Polish and Spanish and and have now become a translator in those languages. But can you give us just briefly the story of how you got into translation, your interest in languages? Yeah, so... I mean, I think my interest in language sort of as an abstract general concept precedes maybe my interest in um, languages. But yeah, when I was a young child, I mean, my so my father was a professor of geography and he taught my sister and me a lot about the world. Like he would, you know, sit with us and look at an atlas for extended periods of time when we were little so um I don't know I guess probably there was also something mysterious in those to us unusual combinations of letters that we were seeing in other cities other countries things like that um but of course I I grew up in Oklahoma in a monolingual environment and I didn't really um I didn't really know what translation was um for a long time i i did start studying russian on my own um 
Well, my sister started studying Ukrainian. We were inspired by the Winter Olympics and our favorite figure skaters. They're not very, you know, like literary um, at the time. And then um, I happened to, I began university early, so I stayed close to home. I went to the University of Tulsa and there happened to be a Russian poet named Yevgeny Yevtushenko, who was one of the best known Russian poets of the 20th century he happened to be teaching here and living in Tulsa. Um, and there was also a Russian language professor named Yelena Dushligina, who um, in combination with Yevgeny Yevtushenko kind of got me into translation because I wanted to write. I wanted to be abroad. I wanted to kind of deepen my connections with other cultures and languages. And it, this obviously was the logical thing for me to do in order to combine all of those desires interesting okay so i also briefly want to mention the books of jacob because i read that last year i think it was last year and it blew me away not only the fact that the book exists itself because i think it's it's a stunning work but also the fact that the translation is so crisp and beautiful and and somehow seems so authentic to not only to um to that story but also to that um, time period as well. But I want to ask you about working on that book and also like working with Olga over this period because like I know you found her through through some of her early work and you kind of championed her work uh, very early on. But can you tell us about that relationship and also that especially the books of Jacob and working on that with her? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I did, I encountered her first in um 2002 or 2003 right at the time that I was transitioning from Russian literature to Polish literature and um I have been championing championing her work since then like you say but um you know the books of Jacob I definitely knew when it landed in my inbox as a word document before it was even published in Polish I knew that that was like the book, I felt very strongly that that was the book that was going to get her the Nobel Prize. And then it was just a matter of preparing all of my publicity materials for it. So before before Olga was really known, um, I had to translate an excerpt, like a 20-page excerpt, write a report on the book, find editors who would be willing to talk to me um, and present it around. And there was, there was interest. There was more interest than there had been in flights, which I still didn't have a publisher for at the time. Um, but, but you know, it's a thousand-page book about areas of the world that people who speak English aren't generally that familiar with. Um, and so there was a lot of reticence on the part of a lot of publishers. But fortunately, a small, very very new publishing house in the UK called Fitzcarraldo, which is now quite famous, I would say, in the literary world. Uh, Jacques Testard, who followed, who founded that and um, who still edits most of the books, I think. Um, he really wanted to publish a Polish writer, and um, he went back to an email I had sent him, you know, like two years before he found it. And... Uh, yeah, it all ended up working out. He he signed both Books of Jacob and Flights. Um, 
And I worked on flights first, obviously. Um, I had already finished more of that book because um, I had been, you know, it lends itself. It's a constellation novel, as Olga says. So it's made up of little snippets of different genres and um, different stories and different moods and different time periods. So it kind of lends itself to reading in short periods in different places or to translating um, in different places. So I had been doing that. And then the books of Jacob ended up happening. It unfolded over a longer time period until Olga won the Nobel Prize, um, which she won in 2019, although it was the 2018 Nobel Prize because there had been the delay um, in awarding the prize because of scandal in the Swedish Academy. But so once that happened, I really accelerated my pace and um, I would say the any uh, qualities in the translation that you admired that are in the second half of the book are entirely thanks to my editors, mm. Jacques Testard and uh, Becky Salatan at Riverhead in the US um, because it was quite a rushed process, but, mm. but nonetheless, a really wonderful one. Yeah, it's for anyone who hasn't read it, I think it's it's going to go down as one of the best books probably of this century. Um, and I really have no fear in being wrong about that. Um, prove me wrong. You'll have to wait 80 odd years, but we'll see. How <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. I want to move on to the extinction of Irina Ray. From the outset, we're dropped into a mystery. We have this beautiful word from the one of the translators at the beginning but essentially we dropped into this world where eight translators are coming over to somewhere in Poland uh right on the edge of a massive forest to translate the work of a really really well-established famous author and she has a new book or at least that's what they think and they're all coming to this town to translate this new book we get to know the translators quite well and the author who they're translating goes missing just after she's kind of deli delivered them a new manuscript and the rest of the book kind of we try and work out what's happened but can you give us your setup of the book um tell us about the introduction from our translator and I guess tell us a little bit more about where this book starts okay um I mean, so the book starts with, like you say, translators being very excited to gather in the wilderness to to work with their beloved author. Um, only they find her utterly transformed and then the following day she disappears. So the book is really about their relationships with one another um, for better and for worse. I, so I'm really really interested in the author translator relationship certainly and that's one that I you know have been thinking about for a long time but I'm also just interested in the translator's mind and the translators in themselves like what is the work that they're doing what is the meaning of that work even aside from um you know the author's place in it and what could be their relationship with one another so in this case it's translators who are dedicated to the same writer. So they have something really significant in common, um, but they all come from very different places and they all have very different personalities, which had been kind of suppressed 
on prior occasions when they had gathered. So now in the wilderness, this is sort of their chance to um, come out of the shadows and really reveal themselves for who they are. And in order to, to show that as dramatically as possible and also to kind of demonstrate actively the power of translation, I set the book up as a translation itself. So the narrator of what we are reading is a Spanish translator who comes from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, and she has written her book in Polish um, to kind of honor the language in which everything took place. And then it has been translated for us by her arch nemesis, the US translator, um, Alexis Archer, who, who prefaces the novel that Emilia has written with a kind of warning um, and a disclaimer and who insists on inserting footnotes throughout the novel mm -hmm. um, to kind of like show her own perspective on what happened or what didn't happen. Um, and yeah, I thought that that would be potentially a, a funny setup, but I also thought um that it would be suitably destabilized. It would force the reader to kind of to remember at regular intervals, if not all the time, that the translator really is the person who is in charge of every word they're reading. Mm. Um, and if the translator decides that they have like a kind of agenda, if the translator is the arch nemesis of the author, um, then you don't really know what to expect and you have to pay really close attention. Mm. The character of Irina Ray, so she's the author in this book that they're coming to translate. Can you tell us a bit about her? Um, was there a real life inspiration for her? And, and just give us a bit of her background. So the character of Irina Ray is um, a bit of a mystery to all. And she remains a bit of a mystery to all, even as they're sort of scouring her house, looking for clues as to her whereabouts, and also just to kind of explain why she's in this altered state when they arrive. But she's, um, you know, she's this gorgeous young writer in her 40s um, who has achieved a kind of worldwide notoriety. Um and she has this whole backlist that they kind of mention at the beginning of very ambitious titles exploring sort of all of the, um, you know, fundamental existential topics of our time. Um, and she is notoriously charismatic, but also quite reclusive. So she has this kind of almost bipolar approach to her her reading public um she isn't really based on any one person i i was sort of interested in the idea of cultural celebrity or literary celebrity or just celebrity i mean there are there are a lot of women i mean when you think about like people are talking about taylor swift so much right now or mm -hmm. think about beyonce um those are extreme examples but they have these really truly like diehard fans who would do anything for um, these people with whom they have parasocial relationships, meaning that, of course, like 
Beyonce doesn't know you exist, even if you dedicate your whole life to her. And that's also sort of an extreme version of, I think, the fear of um, the translator's own insignificance that sometimes crops up. Like, what are what is it that we are doing as translators in comparison with something like, you know, the books of Jacob? This is an absolute masterpiece. And what kind of mm. contribution am I really making as I translate it? Um, so she's just kind of, she's a diva and she's um, a, an amalgam of different people, most of whom I don't, I don't actually know, mm. but um, yeah. Yes, she's a very interesting character and she's definitely quite strange when we meet her at the beginning of this book. One of the things that comes up frequently throughout the book and in this book, theoretically speaking, that they're working on um, to translate is the notion of, I guess, fungi and one in particular called Amadou. And that I know was, we also see that in the translator's note in the beginning that that was theoretically speaking what this book was actually supposed to be called. And I think in your original, that's what the book was going to be called too. But can you tell us about that aspect of the novel? Yeah, I so I want I had this idea that I wanted to write about translators' relationships and celebrity um, and something to do with extinction, like mm -hmm. the sixth extinction. And um, and I then happened to be, I used to go to Poland, before I had twins, I used to go to Poland a bit more regularly. So mm -hmm. I happened to be there in 2017 working on translations. And um, it wasn't the first time that I went to the Białowieża Forest, the first time was like in 2004, but um, I went there again because I had always loved this forest and because in 2017, um, the Polish government had begun logging the forest. So we should say that this really is the last remaining original forest in Europe. Uh, people always say that, and I think it's also important to kind of wonder what that even means. There have been humans around and in this forest for thousands of years. Um, so I think in the same way that I want to question what an original text is, I want to question what an original forest is. But it is this spectacular place that has such an incredibly rich um, and dense texture of fungi and plants and animals and you know insects birds everything is kind of all there there are a lot of species there that no longer exist anywhere else um and so many people including myself were outraged to hear that the government of poland was cutting down um significant portions of the forest so i went i wanted to sort of see what was happening with my own eyes and um, on one morning when I was in what's called the strict reserve, which is the most protected part of the forest, um, I was talking with a, um, a national park worker and he showed me, I was already somewhat interested in uh, fungi, but he showed me this um, bracket mushroom. It's called a tinder polypore. So it's this thing that grows on tree trunks and it looks kind of like a an amputated horse's hoof. Mm -hmm. It has, I feel, a kind of horrifying aspect to it. Like, it looks really strange when you see it for the first time and you don't know what it is. Um, and uh, the National Park worker explained to me, 
the whole kind of social history of this as well as like it's biological um, biography, I guess. Um, so this, it's called Fomus Fomentarius, it's Latin name, um, and it was used for thousands of years by people all over Europe and elsewhere as a fire starter. So you mm. could take the mushroom and treat it with very simple um, chemicals. And before the invention of safe uh, matches, this was a good way to start a fire because it was easy to light. It would hold the fire, um, you know, it would smolder and then you could get a real fire going from it even under um, conditions that were not ideal. And it was also used to staunch bleeding um, and it was used as a substitute for leather, which I think, and now, now suddenly there's a, a little bit of a resurgence um, of this material as a potential replacement for construction materials and certain kinds of plastics, which I think is really exciting. So just the fact that this really strange looking, seemingly quite humble creature um, had had such a varied and extremely important um, kind of life story that most people know nothing about that really intrigued me. And I also thought that it was an interesting metaphor for the kind of translation story I wanted to tell because, um, so this fungus is initially a parasite. It latches onto a sick tree and it kills the tree. And then, so that seems bad, right? Um, but then it becomes a helpful decomposer once the tree is dead. So it turns the tree into um, something nourishing for the rest of the forest. Um, and I don't, of course, I'm not suggesting that translators are parasites, but there is always something unnerving when I'm myself translating and I'm working with a word document and I'm just replacing Polish word after Polish word with English words. So in a way, I'm sort of like eating the original text and inserting myself um, in its place. And I think, um, but for the good of the greater literary ecosystem. Um, mm. So that is what Amadou, what, that was my original title because I, I just found it such a fascinating thing. Um, but yeah, that's what it is. Interesting. One of the other places that I guess mushrooms come up in this book as well is a mushroom risotto that they all eat on the first night with some very mysterious mushrooms. You want to? Can you tell us about those particular mushrooms and how they feature in the story at the beginning? Yeah, those are called inky cap mushrooms, and um, the translators find them. Um, so ordinarily, their meals are prepared for them by Irina Ray's partner, who is also missing when they arrive. Um, so the translators are left to kind of fend for themselves, and they come across these. Um, mushrooms they don't really know what they are but they throw them into a risotto as they prepare their first and what turns out to be a final meal with their author um but when she disappears there's some supposition among some of the translators that perhaps uh, these mushrooms were poisonous to arena. They're actually only potentially toxic if you combine them with alcohol, mm -hmm. um, which arena supposedly did not ever consume. Although we find out that she may, she may 
have um, done a lot of things she claimed not to do um, mm -hmm. later on in the story. But yeah, I wanted to, and that those you can actually write with, they sort of turn into goop, they eat themselves and turn mm -hmm. into this black goop um, that you can use to write, which I thought was a, an appropriate mushroom to choose for this context. Mm, definitely. I'm not going to say too much more about the plot of this book because I think it's just something that you just have to dive into and and it's it's fascinating like honestly it it comes to a it's not quite a thriller but we do have aspects of, of those kind of genres as well but the conclusion is is fantastic it just goes places I didn't know where it would go it had me going down so many rabbit holes of different things uh that yeah it's just a fantastic fantastic book one of the recent stories in Australia and one of the, I guess, the cultural things that have happened uh, since you've written this book, I suppose, um, also to do with mushrooms. In Australia, we had a story about this woman who poisoned her ex-partner's parents with a beef wellington uh, quite recently <laughs> and they died. Mm -hmm. um, so that obviously, you know, I think that's was it was quite a well-reported story. But also, the, I'm not sure if you saw it, but the series The Last of Us as well, which this book kind of had a little bit of reference to I think in a way just in terms of some of the places that I thought you were going to go and then didn't so yeah it's fascinating it goes so many different places and uh yes I loved reading it yeah I well I'm thank you so much and I'm so glad I haven't actually seen The Last of Us but um I know it has to do with this kind of like zombie fungus idea right yeah um yeah, I'd, and I hadn't heard about that case in Australia, which is obviously awful, but um, it just, yeah, it seems like a moment for mushrooms, and there are, I think, a lot of different reasons for that. Mm -hmm. um, also, Merlin Sheldrake's beautiful book, uh, Entangled Life, I think has played a role in that, um, but it's just, we're in a moment of crisis, of course, mm -hmm. where we're looking for all kinds of different solutions and also kind of worst case scenarios and fungi are such a different kind of organism it's really I think um, appealing to look to them for inspiration mm. um, to mitigate climate disasters and also kind of as warnings and as in the case of you know toxicity and the zombie um, idea mm. It's fascinating anyway. All right. I want to ask you, after this book and Twins and all of the other translation stuff you're doing, what are you working on next? So the next book that I have coming out after this one is a translation um, of a very beautiful, very kind of bold experimental novel by Federico Falco, mm -hmm. an Argentine writer I've translated before. It's called The Plains, and it will come out in November. Um, and then after that, I'm not totally sure, like we were saying, my working rhythms have changed a bit. So I'm really interested in prose poetry at the moment. I'd also like to write about my twins and, and mm. translation and twinship. And um, we'll just see. I, I have a an ongoing project about postcards, too, about the history of postcards and um, our relationship with images and language so that I'm sure will keep um, evolving in the in the coming months and years.
Excellent. Okay, I want to ask you a tiny bit more about that Federico Falco book because that sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's really, really good. So it's um, it's hard to even say that it's a story. I was going to say it's the story of a man who uh, retreats to a very, very, very small town. Actually, he doesn't even retreat to the town. He retreats to just outside the town um, in the province of Buenos Aires after the very sudden implosion of his long-term relationship. Um, and he starts a vegetable garden in an effort to kind of come out of his obsessions. And he's just been going over again and again what went wrong with his partner and what he could have done differently. And um, over the course of the book, which is divided into chapters by month, um, he starts to learn just to kind of stop asserting himself, stop trying to control um, things that are happening. So start submitting to nature and um, those rhythms and the weather, which is quite dramatic um, in that part of the world and um, accepting failures and starting over again and all the while thinking about what the relationship between language and reality is and what it could be and what it should be. Um, you know, like does talking about a landscape in some way do violence to that landscape in misrepresenting it necessarily or in giving one a false sense of ownership um, when one names, you know, a certain place or area so it's really, it's a little bit of a challenging read at first because, you know, this character doesn't really know what's going to happen and neither does the reader and you don't quite have a sense um, yet. But as it goes along, it's just filled with really brilliant observations about literature and the nature of story and the purpose of story. Um, and I was, I was really blown away by it and I'm excited for it to come out. Excellent. Okay. I want to ask you about your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, the earliest ones were Dr. Seuss. Mm. <laughs> um, but moving on from that, I don't know. You know, very early on, I was interested in Russian literature. I read Anna Karenina um, multiple times as a as a young teenager and um, I'm still very moved by that book and then as I started exploring other parts of um, Europe especially Central Europe I would say um, aside from Olga's work Vitold Gombrovich had a big influence on me and also mm. in particular on this novel um, he's such an interesting figure who like me, kind of didn't feel comfortable in his native space. Um, and he lived in Argentina for 23 years and um, never really fit in anywhere. And um, really kind of tried to expose a lot of the absurdity and potential meaninglessness of our daily lives, but in a in an almost celebratory way, like not in de through despair, but just, yeah, through a kind of carnivalesque mm. um, 
series of events in each of his books. Not that he has so many books, but my favorites are Pornographia and Cosmos and um, potentially his short stories. But mm. yeah, I just th think he's a really interesting writer. Bruno Schultz, whom he knew, um, I think is better known in English, potentially um, a much dreamier, denser prose style. Um, Wisława Szymborska mm. is another Polish Nobel Prize winner um, whose poetry is just so unusual because it's so kind of light and airy and yet it really rewards repeat reading and um, really is quite thought-provoking while also being very accessible. That's always something that I admire in a writer. Chekhov's fiction, um, for sure. Amazing. Okay. I saw that The Possessed, there's a new translation of The Possessed coming out, I think, in March as well. Yeah. And I think it's already out in the UK, um, but it's coming out here in March as well. Yeah, that's by Antonia Lloyd-Jones. Mm. Really glad that these new translations of Gombrowicz are coming out. The um, the ones that we had before were via the French translations, um, which, of course, is potentially an interesting experiment, but it's mm. also nice to, to have the more direct relationship. Yeah, interesting. And she's also someone who's translated Olga as well, hasn't she? Yeah, she's she has been translating Olga for longer than I have, and mm. her translation of Olga's new book, The Impusium, I believe it's called in English, um, is coming out, I think, in the fall, maybe September. Um, so that's exciting. Mm. Have you read that book in Polish? I've, I sort of skimmed it. It came right after my uh, twins mm. were born and I haven't really gone back to it because I knew that it was in very good hands with Antonia so yeah. Um, yeah I'm excited to to do a deeper dive interesting okay well on that I want to ask you what other books are you reading at the moment or are you looking forward to this year it's a good question um I just started reading a book called how to be multiple by Helena Debray which just came out here which is about twins and the idea of I'm really interested in um how to balance sort of individual subjectivity with connectedness and twins are interesting because you are you know you you are a self-contained being of course but you're also in this other unit with your double whether it's identical twins or not um so that's just a topic I'm really interested in and um, otherwise, I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks recently. Um, I love audiobooks, and it's such a great way to read while also doing all the things I need to do, like clean the house. And <laughs> as you can imagine, it's just like a, a constant tornado. Mm. Um, so I really, I really enjoyed Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I don't know if you've read that, but I um, and I thought, I thought it. It was a really mesmerizing um, book. Also, the you know the narration matters so much, and this was a wonderful narrator whose name I'm unfortunately forgetting. But um, yeah, I thought it was a really beautiful book. Mm. And my next audio book is actually the 
um, extremely well-known Australian writer who I am so ashamed to admit I haven't read before, but um, I'm finally reading Gerald Murnane, um, which is exciting. The, the only audio book I could find was short stories. Okay. Um, I've listened to one and mm. it's great. Excellent. Yeah, I'm not sure why. In Australia, there seems to not be a focus on audiobooks. So a lot of Australian authors, they don't seem to be available in audiobook format for, yeah, for some reason. I don't know why. Interesting. Mm. Huh. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty popular in the US now. And, and mm. like I say, I, I really enjoy it. It's, of yeah. course, it's a different kind of experience, but mm. I also don't think they're mutually exclusive. Like you could certainly listen to a book and then read it um, later or vice versa, which I have done. Yeah. No, I think it's a totally different experience when you read a book and then when you hear somebody else reading it, especially when they're really, really good at what they do. So yeah, yeah it does make a yeah. huge difference. Yeah, it's really, it's in a way, it's like a tr reading a translation um, mm. because all each of their minute decisions um, makes a huge impact on how you're going to be receiving the text. Yeah. Mm. Are there any other books coming out this year that you're looking forward to? I've sort of been trying to avoid finding out about mm. the other books that are coming out this year. I know there's so many huge titles. Um, I've been hearing great things about Kava Akbar's Murder, which I haven't read yet. Mm. Um, I know Tommy Orange has a new book coming out uh, in late February, which is going to be great, I'm sure. Mm. Um yeah, I don't know. What about you? What are you excited about for this year? Uh, well, I've already read your book. So that was a really good way to start the year. Um, there's a few, there's quite a few things coming up. I know like Form Just Stamp, I have like some really exciting things coming out of their press um, in all sorts of different languages. Um, the Olga book sounds great. There's a new Holbeck, Welbeck, sorry, book coming out later in the year, I think, in September. What huh. else is there? There's so many things coming out. It's crazy. Yeah. But there's a lot of, yeah. A lot of stuff from Dalkey sounds really good. There's one called Marshlands by, I forget the author's name, but a Japanese writer that sounds really interesting. So many things. I don't know. There's heaps of things coming up. There's Andres Neumann has like a, two books coming out, I think, in April or May from Open Letter. I don't know. There's a huge amount of things coming up. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it feels like it's an unusually, I think, especially in the spring, it's an unusually mm. um, exciting period. Yeah. I think, especially here in the US, because we have the presidential elections coming up in the fall, mm. no one wants to. No one wants to put out fiction um, in oh, September, October, November. So, so we're all getting it this time of year. Okay. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. I've had friends who were told that they had to either finish their books faster in order to be able to publish like yeah. now, or they would have to wait a year um, and publish in spring of 2025. Okay. So. Interesting. Okay. Wow. I didn't realize that. Maybe that's why there's so much good stuff coming out like now and in March, April. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero, speaking with Jennifer Croft. Are you sick and tired of your job? Are you sick of your friends and family? Have you just McFucking had it and you want a new start? Well, why not sign up for the Beyond the Zero Johatsu program? We can give you a new identity and send you off on your new life. 
Sign up today by using the promo code It was the magic mushrooms to get a 10% discount. We're back on Million Zero. It's time for Jenny's Desert Island Books. Oh, my goodness. Well, I feel like my Desert Island books are probably um, some of the same books that were my gateway books. Um, But yes, let's move on to them. So one of the books that I've read repeatedly and loved maybe more and more each time that's a that's a relatively new book is uh Virginie Despont's Vernon Subutex mm. one uh translated by Frank Wynn I'm just obsessed with that book I think it's so brilliant and I think the translation is so brilliant um and it's just I mean I think you can read it over and over because it's a really unusual book for contemporary fiction in my experience, because it covers so many different kinds of perspectives from all different social classes. Have you read this book? Yeah, I think they're such great books. I really, I was surprised I loved it so much. And then I wasn't sure if I was, you know, when you finish a book and you're like, this lady is so much smarter than me. It's ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. Um, No, I mean, it was, it was like, it was like Borges is all left for something. Like, I don't know how she managed to, mm to channel all of these extremely, extremely, extremely different voices. Mm. And I don't know how Frank managed to do the same when he was translating the book into English. It's just an astonishing uh, achievement. And I, I really wish more people had read it. Um, Mm. But yeah, so I don't know, I guess it's, I feel like this desert Island list fluctuates, but that is something that's occurring to me right now. Mm. Um, I've also been really into the works of Ian Lee, um, which are so strange and so poignant. Um, would love to maybe take her short stories, but certainly Borges and certainly Bruce's um, In Search of Lost Time, which is great because that's like a, an endless book that mm-hmm. counts as one book. I don't know how many books I get. Um, and some poetry uh, would be good to take as well. Yeah. Which poets would you take? I would take Shamborska, mm. probably. Um, and then it's a good question. I've just been reading Carl Phillips, a U.S. poet um, that it, who is about to visit Tulsa. And um, he seems like such a wonderful and rich uh, writer about love and nature and um, kind of these themes that you can't really exhaust um, whether you're reading about them or writing about them but um, yeah I don't know it's so it's always so hard to choose like whenever I'm packing books for a trip I change my mind a thousand times and (laughs) end up taking way too many books Mm. and I don't I always think that I should take them on like a Kindle or an e-reader and then I never do. So I just have really (laughs) heavy luggage. Mm. Yes, I do the same thing. And then I end up taking the Kindle as well. And yes, it's always fun. (laughs) Always fun. Nice. All right. 
I should wrap it up with you. Congratulations on the extinction of Irina Ray. I just loved it. Um, really, really great way to start the year in reading. Thank you so much for coming on. Before I let you go, do you want to tell us where we can get the book? We can pre-order it or get it because it's coming out very soon. Where can we get it and where can we catch you online? Um, I'm not sure what the best sort of bookshops to recommend um, would be in Australia and elsewhere in the world. But um, certainly, you know, here you can get it through bookshop if you want to order something online or just go to whatever um, bookshop is closest to you that you like. Mm -hmm. And I'll be doing a book tour um here and then i'll actually be i'll be in australia for the sydney writers festival and oh, the wow. brisbane writers festival which will be my first time there i mean in australia in general mm. um and that's in late may okay. um so yeah i will have right. to book some tickets up to sydney sounds like a very good excuse awesome well that would be wonderful love yeah. to see you Brilliant. Who's a publisher in the US? Is it Scribe as well? It's Scribe UK Australia? It's Scribe UK Australia. And then in the US, it's Bloomsbury. I'm currently redoing my website, but yeah. um, I'm currently calling it craftwork.net. <laughs> so um, just work spelled W-O-R-K. Um, yeah. But I think Jennifer L. Croft also works, jenniferlcroft.com. Okay, brilliant. And also find me on social media. All right. It has been a pleasure chatting. Lovely to finally meet you in person. And I'm just honestly, it's been such a pleasure reading your work in translation and also this novel. You're doing the world a huge amount of good. So oh, well, talking. you too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks once again to Jenny Croft for joining us. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on X and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod and you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. Don't forget to support the podcast by heading over to Patreon.com and searching for Beyond Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon. 